And would you turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1? We're starting our Advent series up through Christmas, and we're looking at uh, the Gospel through. Uh, we're we're, we're going to spend some time. I'm, I'm calling this Christmas with Matt. Uh, we're going to look at the Christmas story through the eyes of the Gospel of Matthew. So I'm going to invite you to turn with me there. Matthew chapter 1, we're going to begin here with verse 1 and read down through verse 17. Would you stand with me as we read this together? Would you repeat this prayer with me? Lord, this is your word to me today. May it be a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Help me to hide this word in my heart that I might not sin against you. May I pray it in, read it through, live it out, and pass it on. Amen. I'm going to begin here with verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amminadab, Amminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. And after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. Abiud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Eliud. Eliud, the father of Eliezer. Eliezer, the father of Mathen. Mathen, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. May God add his blessing to that word. You can be seated. I should get a prize at least for... I was going to have someone else read that today, but... Uh... <laughs> now, now, let's be honest. How many of you kind of zone out, though, when you read, read this, when we come to this portion of Scripture? How many of us just kind of skim over it or just skip over it altogether. I mean, that's kind of, I thought you guys were Christians, but this, this is, that's, that's a kind of an interesting passage. And we have to ask ourselves, why is it there? 
What's it doing there? You know, at least we could get some good baby names out of this, right? You know, like Sheetil and Hezron and Aminadab. I mean, who needs your kids to love you? That kind of a thing. Uh, but, uh, but why is it here? The truth is most of us aren't into genealogies, especially someone else's genealogy. I personally have never been one of those who really dived in to their own genealogy. You know, some people really get serious about this. I don't know, does anyone go to the websites, put the money down, figure it out? You know, yeah, okay, okay, Adrian, you've done that. I'm like, you know, I have enough relatives, really. If you were at my Thanksgiving, you would have understood that I'm fine, I'm good, I don't need it anymore, and I'm afraid of what I might discover if I go too far down that path. But we might think here that, that Matthew is going to tell us a story, and we feel like, man, this is not the way I'd start it. A snoozer, genealogy. But there is a reason he does that. Now, you probably know that Matthew was one of Jesus's disciples, but before he became a disciple, he was a tax collector. He was a tax collector, and if you know anything about tax collecting in that day, tax collectors were, were, were despised by most Jews because they were the ones who were collaborating with, cooperating with the Roman occupiers who controlled Israel. And so they were looked at as turncoats and profiteers. They betrayed their own people to get rich. And so they regarded them as having sold their souls to the devil for an income in this life. But one day, something happens to Matthew. Jesus comes along his tax booth, his tax office, and looks at Matthew and says, follow me. And lo and behold, Matthew just gets right up and he begins to follow Jesus. Something in his life begins to change immediately. He gets up, he leaves the table, and he follows Jesus. And my prayer is, is that during this season, maybe just one, maybe even here this morning, will hear Jesus say, follow me, and they will be so convinced of the, of the person of Jesus, they will say, Lord, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to give my life to you. I'm going to trust you. And so I'd like us to look at Christmas through Matthew's eyes. And he chooses to begin with this genealogy. You say, man, this is not how you tell a story. In our day, when we hear a fairy tale or a story, we want to hear something like once upon a time. We, we want to hear uh, all those, those, those in a galaxy far, far away. And yet everything you need to know about Christianity is in fact right here in this genealogy. All the essentials that Matthew is sharing with us about this genealogy is in fact communicating to his readers a number of powerful truths. And I want to give you some of those this morning. The first one I want you to think about is this, and I want to give proper credit here. I came to understand this from a pastor named Tim Keller. Some of you know that name. And he reminded us this, that when we read this passage, the gospel is not good advice, it's good news. Matthew is telling us that. Again, most stories would begin once upon a time or in a 
galaxy far, far away, or something like that. But Matthew is not telling us a fairy tale. He doesn't start that way. He starts out with a genealogy, which is his way of saying, what I'm going to tell you actually happened in space and time. It is an historical event. Christianity's most important feature is that it is actual history because the core of Christianity is not a set of principles that Jesus taught us to do, but is in fact something Jesus has done for us. I want you to think about this. Most religions out there, if you peel them back, they are built on a series of teachings and principles that really would be true whether their founders ever lived or not. The religious founder was just the mouthpiece for those teachings. For example, Buddhism. You have principles to live by in Buddhism. For Buddhism doesn't really depend on whether or not Buddha actually lived. Those principles, Buddhists believe, undergird the universe. Buddha was just a mouthpiece. The same thing is true for Islam. Islam is a pattern of life based on four pillars given by Allah. Muhammad was just his prophet, the mouthpiece for that teaching. Now, of course, Muslims would say, well, of course, uh, Muhammad was a real, actual person. But if you think about it, at the very core of that, the principles of Islam, the teachings of Islam, do not depend on whether or not he was a real person. Are you following me there? Does that make sense? If they had not actually lived, the principles they say are still true. But that is not true of Christianity. Christianity depends on a set of events that actually took place in time and history because at the core of Christianity is not just what Jesus taught us to do, but what he would do for us. Many scholars have noted when they read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you really read them from cover to cover, you begin to realize that they are really just written as prologues to the death of Christ. The central element in each of the Gospels is taking us to the cross where Jesus would die. So the Gospels, each of them skim over 33 years of Jesus' life, three years of his teaching. They focus on one week at the end there in which he would go to the cross, bear the penalty of sin, and die for the sins of the world. This is where everything in the Gospels leads to, and then he rises again. So yes, the Gospels, if you read them, contain, of course, a lot of things that Jesus taught, but the focus of the Gospels is not on what Jesus taught, but on what he did. This isn't good advice then. This is good news. In fact, that word gospel means good news. In Greek, the, uh, the, word, the, the word gospel is euangelion. It's a combination of two words. Eu meaning good, angelion meaning message. We are evangelical. You see the evangelical euangelia we are evangelical friends we have a good message we have good news you know in in ancient times when someone came from a distance and told the community that the war had been won 
that there was now peace in the land. That would be called a gospel. It was a good message. And guess who the messenger who brought the gospel, what he would have been called? An angelos, an angel. When Jesus was born, who showed up? Angels announcing peace on earth, salvation for all. They didn't say a great teacher is here. No, they sang out, the Savior is born. Matthew is telling us then that God enters into history and does for us what we could not do for ourselves. And those who believe that and receive it will be forever changed. And that's the gospel. The most important thing about the gospel is that, that it has to be believed. It has to be received as a gift. We've, we've sung about that. We've talked about that already this morning. And by the way, that means this, and, and don't miss this. You are not a Christian if you just try to emulate the teachings of Jesus. Did, did you hear me? If you really make an effort and just try to do the good things that Jesus taught and you do them really well and you do them better than most other people, that does not make you a Christian. You may do better than others, but you will still fall short because the core of Christianity is not about what you do. It is not about the teachings to be followed. It is about receiving the gift of eternal life that Jesus Christ alone offers because he died on the cross. And so the gospel is not primarily good advice. It's good news. And it's good news for you, and it's good news for me. God has done for you what you could not do for yourself. But there's something else that this genealogy causes us to come to mind, and that is this. Genealogy here shows us that Jesus is, in fact, at the center of history. In this passage, we just read, and we went through the list. Matthew takes what the world would have considered to be an insignificant family line, and he organizes all of human history around it. And here's why that is important. At this point, it, it certainly didn't seem like Jesus was the focal point of history. I mean, think about it. Uh, Israel is a small backwater Middle Eastern country that is under the control of Rome. Nobody knows the name of Bethlehem in the world. Nobody in Rome was paying attention to this little family line. Nobody cared. But God had made a promise to Abraham. Remember we talked about it a few weeks ago, a covenant and that covenant was that I will use your line to help save the world. One will come through you to be a blessing to all. And to this point in world history, you've got these powerful nations and powerful rulers and people seem like they are directing things. But what Matthew shows us is this genealogy is that God, in fact, is the one who is guiding it all coming together according to his plan for his Messiah. The powers of the world are just an illusion. Let me give you uh, one quick example of this that I thought about. You know, one of the uh, 
basic points of the story that we often retell when we read, for instance, Luke chapter 2, is about how at Christmas that Joseph and Mary had to travel to Bethlehem because Rome had chosen to tax everyone and take a census. And so therefore, you had to go to your home city to, to be registered. But of course, Luke explains to us that God's purpose is in that because, because the Messiah was to be born at Bethlehem. The prophecies said that he would come to Bethlehem. He would need to be born there. So God moves Rome to this tax, to this census, so he can get Mary and Joseph back to Bethlehem. Well, you think, well, do you ever wonder why God went to such lengths to get them to Bethlehem? Why didn't he just say to Joseph in a dream or an angel, hey, Joseph, go to Bethlehem? That would have been simple. But maybe God was doing something more there. Could it be that God just wanted to demonstrate that he powerfully moves nations around like chess pieces to bring about his purposes in Christ? He taxes the whole world to move 90 people, or, or two people, 90 miles to Bethlehem. Now, this is why that encourages me this morning. And I hope this is a blessing to you. It doesn't look like right now, Jesus is the center of history. Look around our world today. CNN is not here this morning. Fox News isn't paying attention to what we do. They are watching what they think are the most important powers in the world. They're paying attention to the markets tomorrow when they open, to the White House, to Mar-a-Lago, or Moscow, or Beijing. But that's nothing. The center of history is, is what God is doing in the midst of his kingdom. He says, it will come. And his purpose is to make the gospel this, this good news to every nation on earth, and he will accomplish it to where every person and every nation is subject to that name that is above every name the name of Jesus that's where this is all headed and so when we looked at the story of Esther a couple of weeks ago we discovered you know God has the whole thing rigged he's working behind the scenes yeah you may not always clearly see him but he is up to something he's accomplishing his purposes Many of you, I do this too. I look around and I get discouraged at what I see happening in our world. Secularism seems to be taking over, corrupting so much. An election didn't go this way or that way. Unbelief seems to be growing. There seems to be a corrosiveness and a corruption in our nation and in our culture. But don't be deceived. Back 2,000 years ago, it didn't look like God was doing anything. And yet he was up to something incredible and beautiful and glorious. He sent his son to Bethlehem. 
I remember uh, a number of years ago when I started out on taking sabbaticals, and the church has always been so kind in giving me a sabbatical uh, uh, a month about every other year or so, and, and so I would take off July very often, and while, for a while there I was studying for my doctorate and whatnot, but, but early on, one of the things that I would do, I you know would find a, a series to watch on television, or I back then we used a DVD, and uh, uh, somehow I had never seen the series 24. You remember Jack Bauer and all of that? Never seen the series at that point. And so I decided, well, you know, I'm gonna watch this. I had a couple of friends who really enjoyed it and I put it in. Mary got hooked on this as well. And so during this sabbatical, and, and you gotta understand, when I was watching it, I, we went on a marathon of 24. I mean, you know, cause it's 24 hours. And so we wouldn't eat, we wouldn't sleep. We were just kind of going through and want, you know, once we got hooked, we just kept going to watch one season. And then if we had enough energy, we'd try to go. It was kind of crazy, kind of nutty to be honest with you. But I remember finding out, you know, I, I didn't know how long this series went, but I thought, oh, well, that's the end. Jack's dead at the end of one series, you know, or, or he'd be in captivity and final captivity in China or somewhere. And I thought, wait a second, there's a series three or a series four, and there's Jack Bauer on the cover of, of this next series. He must have made it. I don't know how he made it. I don't know how it happened, but he apparently pulls through somehow. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It wasn't what I was expecting, but it, it, it happened. And so we put in the DVD, and guess what? He'd be there. And it became kind of our thing to, to watch that, but somehow he'd be back. I, I just want to remind you this morning, Christian, Jesus is on the cover of both sides of this book. He's at the beginning and he's at the end. Paul says he must reign. It is God's purpose. It will happen. He wins. And so you might get discouraged. You might get frustrated. It may look like you are subject to forces that are beyond your control. I know that. I feel it too. But God's purposes will not be thwarted and God's glory will be revealed in your life and in your home and in our nation and in the world. It's rigged. God is in control. And he's up to something. And then finally, I want to just share this. This genealogy reminds us that God works all things for good, good and bad in our lives for his purposes. Now, I want you to follow me here. Don't miss out. Kind of have to put on your thinking caps here. But as you read this passage, you're going to note how Matthew organizes the progression here from Abraham to David, and then from David to the exile, and then the exile to Jesus. And if, you're, if you do the counting, you'll see that there are three sets of 14. Three sets of 14 generations. Now, 14 is, of course, two sevens, and seven is the biblical number of completion and perfection. So you have three sets of 14. How many is that? You, you, well, you do the math. I'll let you figure that out. Interesting to me, however, I'll make a couple of point here, points here, but if you 
actually read through the Old Testament genealogies, one of the things you'll note is that some generations, in fact, Matthew skips. Matthew is organizing this genealogy in such a way that in three sections of 14 to show that God has superimposed his seal of perfection in history. But this is what is amazing to me. Even though he skips some generations to to make it all come out, Matthew could have chosen to get rid of some of the messy, random, chaotic, ugly stuff here. Look Look at verse three, for instance. He says, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, I don't know how well you know your Genesis and your Old Testament history, but I'm not going to tell you the whole story today because it's rather seedy. But in Genesis 38, you have this story of Tamar, and Tamar ends up seducing her father-in-law, pretending to be a prostitute. She ends up pregnant, and her father-in-law wants to punish her with death, and then she produces proof that he's the father. Now think about that and wonder what Thanksgiving was like at their table, you know. But Matthew includes that. Rahab is mentioned in verse 5. You may recall who Rahab was. Remember Rahab, the prostitute in Jericho? Listen, one of the things we begin to see as we begin to examine this is God can take the ugly stuff, the stuff we're ashamed of, uh, but he has an overriding purpose. And somehow through his work, he makes it beautiful. God takes the chaotic mess of our lives and families and stamps his perfection, his perfect 14 on them. Anyone show up this morning with a perfect family? Got one back there. Congratulations. Let me give you another example here. For a Jewish person, of course, I mean, if you know anything about the Jews, they were very concerned about the genealogy. Your heritage is how you showed that you were a person of worth and value. And so back then, like today, resumes were fudged according to how you wanted to include the best parts and omit the the worst parts, right? I mean, the reality is the closest some of you have ever come to perfection and being a complete and true liar is when you've produced a resume. Well, Herod, king at the time of Jesus, he published his genealogy, but you know, he conveniently expunges his record of all the the embarrassing ancestors. It makes me think, have you ever seen those photos from the Soviet era of leaders who suddenly in a new picture just aren't there they're whited out they this happened many many times in the Soviet era when they just weren't concluded in history anymore no longer a part of history yet look who Jesus includes in his we've talked about Tamar we've talked about Rahab what about Ruth she's a Moabite In fact, why are women included at all? Uh, Ruth, she's not a a Jew. 
Verse six, look at this. Remember this story. It says, David and the wife of Uriah, who gives birth to Solomon. Now, why that phrase? Why didn't you, you know who Uriah's wife was, right? Her name was Bathsheba. Why didn't he just write her name down? He's making you remember the story. Remember King David who betrays his, one of his most loyal officers and sleeps with his wife and then has that officer killed to try to cover it up? So begin to read this and you see that Jesus' line is filled with moral outsiders, ethnic outsiders, Gentiles, gender outsiders, women. And this is all there to send a message. Turns out Jesus came for outsiders. He was not ashamed to identify with the outcast. He says, I'll make you part of my family. All, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. There is none righteous, no, not one. But he came and upon him would be laid the iniquity of us all. So Abraham and King David are mentioned in the same list as the prostitute Rahab because in Jesus Christ, prostitute and king sit down as equals. That's the gospel. That's good news. That means, again, no matter who you are, what you've done, where you're coming from. Listen, friends, there's room in this family for you. You may feel like an outcast, but you're not. You may feel like you're worthless, but you're not. He has brought you close. You, you may feel and struggle with your worth. He has purchased you with his own precious blood. You may think that God's plan for you is over. You messed it up. It can't be. But this genealogy shows you that with grace it can just begin. God was at work in the ugliest situations, the worst crises, bringing forth, in fact, his most beautiful son. And in Christ, the ugliness of our lives can be transformed into glory if we just give it to him. So what does a snoozer list like this tell us? Well, this list tells us that Jesus comes as a gift. Jesus comes as a gift doing something for you that you could not do for yourself. You messed it up. It's a given. We all did. But Jesus comes and says, I'll let you be a part of my family. We together win a battle against sin because I paid the price for sin. But if it's a gift, my friend, it does mean this. You have to receive it. Have you received it? 
Jesus is the central point of history. He is the center of the world and the center of our lives. And so have you come to know him personally? Because when all is said and done, at the very center of it all will be Jesus alone at the center stage receiving the applause and the glory. And he wants to share that moment with you. Couldn't help but think then, you know, 14, 14, 14, three sets of 14, six sets of 14, and then you have Jesus. Jesus, turns out, is the seventh, seventh. Now, you can do all kinds of games with numbers, and I don't necessarily go there very often, but Jesus is the perfect rest. He's perfection. John 1.12 tells us this, but, all, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. And my simple question to you is, make sure you've received that gift. He offers it freely. And if you have received that gift, be an angel to someone else and invite them to receive it too. Invite them to church. Have a, have a spiritual discussion. What a wonderful time of year to think about the baby in the manger. What does that mean? Why do we celebrate it? Will you pray with me? Father, the privilege of my life is to be able to proclaim the gospel message the good news is that Jesus Christ came for me, a sinner. And not because of anything I have done, but because of everything Jesus did. I can receive that gift. Lord, I pray that maybe there's someone here today whose heart has been hard, but this morning their eyes are open and they hear you crying out, follow me, trust me receive me Lord not because they are worthy but in fact because they aren't you came to this earth Lord for those of us who have received that gift we worship you and give you thanksgiving and praise and adoration and Lord would you do something in us in such a way that we would be willing and able to share that gift with others that we would be the conduit of grace the messenger of the gospel in their lives through through the course of our lives through the the way we follow you through the way we we interact with our neighbors and our friends and our family that they might see evidence that Jesus is real and your purposes would be accomplished in their lives too Lord thank you for what you've done May each person here make that decision today to receive the gift that you offer. Amen. Amen.